My One Temptation, written by Alice Golding and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. This was the one. My revenge dress. Cherry red satin with a flowing calf-length skirt, which covered my knobbly knees. The padded bustier made my boobs perkier and my waist appear tiny. Piled high on the bed were my drunken internet purchases using Bill's credit card. He deserved to have a seizure when the credit card bill dropped on his doorstep. I needed a complete new set of choices for my wardrobe because of his midlife crisis. Nothing spoils a girl's appetite more than a weak, cliché-driven husband running off with his work colleague. Susie, spelt with a Z, was the same age as our daughter. There were benefits. I was down two dress sizes. Go me. Mirrors don't lie, and I admired my new sleek curves with a smug satisfaction. The hairdresser promised me that my new blonde bob would make me look younger, and, with a touch of subtle makeup, she was right. Not like Susie, the tart. Sliding my feet into my killer red heels, I tottered down the stairs to collect my bag of offerings for the afternoon barbecue. Coudites, chopped up carrot, celery and red peppers arranged on a tin foil tray. A selection of dips and a couple of bottles of sparkling wine. Chloe and Derek lived in the house opposite when we moved in ten years ago. Bill and I always attended their first barbecue of the summer. I refused to give him the satisfaction of missing it this year. Oh, what if they'd invited him and his floozy, spelt with a Z. I needed this revenge dress to brave the next few hours of nightmare sympathy from my friends. Or worse, gleeful gossip between my neighbours. Tactfully whispering out of reach of my hearing, leaving me to imagine their words. 28 years of marriage and Bill runs off with a girl half his age. Sarah is mutton dressed as lamb these days, a difficult age to find another man. Poor love. I marched across the road holding my head up high, only to lose my nerve at the front door. My finger hovered above the doorbell. Did it work? asked a deep voice. Someone smelling of bergamot was standing at my shoulder. I glanced back. He was young, well, younger than me anyway, although everyone was these days, and his smile made his brown eyes twinkle. He was looking rugged with a six o'clock stubble, pecked straining against a plain white T-shirt, an inked angel on his left forearm, and his cargo shorts showcased his muscular calves. The flip-flops on his tan feet revealed a daring side. At least they did to me. I considered wearing loose footwear at a barbecue dangerous. Hot food, stepped on toes, not to mention cutting your feet on broken glass, courtesy of Chloe, usually after she'd finished her second bottle of wine. Wearing shoes avoided a visit to the A&E department. Oh, I was so boring. Perhaps I should do something out of character. I'll try again, I smiled wistfully and pushed the button. Chloe answered the door, holding a depleted flute of pink sparkling wine, and her jaw dropped open at the sight of the two of us. Sarah, Leo, glad you could both make it. I didn't know you were together. Serves Bill Wright for trading you in for a younger model. 
perfect payback. You're a cougar, she tittered. And why not? Oh dear, she thought I'd arrived with this gorgeous young man, Leo. The name suited him. My cheeks heated up. I suspected they were now a brighter shade of red than my dress. I was speechless. I felt an arm slip around my waist. Sarah is gorgeous. Why wouldn't I be tempted? Age is just a number after all. Leo's deep voice reverberated down my spine and my nerve endings tingled from my head to my toe. He was playing along with her mistake. She deserved it, making outrageous assumptions and calling me a cougar. Leo has brightened up my day. We are very happy to be here. I thrust the bag in her direction. A few nibbles and a couple of bottles. They've been in the fridge, so they're good to go. Come on in, and I'll get Derek to get you both a drink. I glanced at Leo and he winked. We followed her into the back garden. I longed to hide in the corner, preferably with a large glass of wine, but Chloe had other ideas. Hi everyone, Sarah and Leo are here. Face his hand in our direction and Leo pulled me a little closer. How did his presence reassure me when I'd only met him a moment ago? Bill never made me feel safe like this. Leo grinned at me. He was enjoying the charade, and I decided to go with the flow. Derek, called Chloe. The doorbell rang again. She handed me back my bag. You might as well give this to Derek. He'll sort your drinks, and I'll catch you both later. You must tell me all. I laughed. Poor Chloe. I've surprised her, even though she's got it completely wrong. Why on earth did you play up to her? What are you going to do now? We're going to be a couple on our first date. The simplest explanation is usually the best. You do this often? My first time. You? Definitely my first time. Let's get a drink and you can tell me all about yourself. If you're going to do this, we might as well make a good job of it. Poor Derek was behind the bar mixing cocktails, passing out cans of beer and pouring glasses of wine. Bill always envied this addition and wanted one too, but I pointed out he'd be stuck serving instead of mingling. Thankfully, the bar in our garden never materialised. Derek passed me a glass of Prosecco and Leo a bottle of IPA, and then we found a quiet spot to talk. Tell me about you. Forty-five-year-old widower. My wife died two years ago, and it's been hard. Mum offered to have kids for the weekend. Tom is 10 and Harry 12. Derek has been a good friend. He insisted I made it to the barbecue this year. I couldn't say no. I reached for his hand and gave it a squeeze. I'm glad you turned up at the same time as me. I'm starved. Let's get some food. I'm starved too. He laughed and pulled me in the direction of the buffet table. I hope there's steak. You're not a vegetarian, are you? Nope. Total carnival, although I can only bring rabbit food today. I unloaded the crudités and dips and passed Leo a plate. Good food, good wine, good company. The afternoon was perfect. When Chloe brought out the cake, we all sang happy birthday to Derek. Death by chocolate, come and get a slice. My one temptation. 
Leo smiled at me and I melted. He was my next temptation. Why couldn't I have more than one? I surrendered. Thanks, Chloe. A large slice and two forks, please. Expect the Unexpected was written by Rosemary Emmett and is narrated by Roger Ems. It had been a perfect day with ideal conditions for sailing. The crew of the Ehor, George, Bob, Lee, Pete and Tom, were making their way round the Bay of Naples with its stunning cliffs and buildings perilously perched on what looked like the very edge and about to fall into the sea below. The temperature had dropped to the low twenties and dusk was fast approaching. Lee suggested they should head for the harbour and moor up for the night. It was a beautiful, calm evening. A large orange sun was setting behind them, making them look quite eerie and dramatic. On approaching the harbour, they all noticed a massive luxury yacht towering above the smaller craft nearby. Wow, that must be someone important and wealthy, judging by the size of that, exclaimed Pete. We might find it tight getting in there. It makes our 40-footer look like a toy yacht, concluded Pete. Then he added, of course, it could be the Mafia. They all looked at each other and shrugged. Ah, what will be will be, they all agreed. Right, said Lee, let's get our little yacht manoeuvred into its allotted space. As they secured the yacht to the pontoon, their suspicions were confirmed. They noticed their every move was being watched by a menacing character the size of a wrestler. They all said a cheery good evening, as was the custom among like-minded people, but the greeting was not reciprocated. Maybe he's deaf or under orders, remarked Bob. Once moored up and plugged into the shore power, it was time to break out the nibbles and the G&Ts. Sitting in the cockpit round the table, unwinding after a hard day's sail, the other boat's crew came and joined them and compared how the trips had been during the day. They were always the first ones in, a good skipper and better crew. All were looking forward to a relaxing meal and a bottle of wine or two in one of the excellent restaurants dotted around the harbour. It was the last evening in this idyllic area. They were returning reluctantly to England the following day. Before leaving the yacht, they secured all the lockers and made sure everything of value was very well hidden. Satisfied all was well, the cabin was padlocked and they made their way along the pontoon. They were all uneasy, not knowing who their mystery neighbours were. The crew noticed the guard had gone and their yacht was in darkness. They could hear muffled voices as they passed. They agreed not to worry about it and just enjoy the evening. The crew would be paying for the skipper's meal. It was the tradition. They found a perfect restaurant with the added bonus of very attractive waitresses. After overindulging in food and wine, they returned to the boats, staggering like drunken sailors. But something was amiss. The security light was out. Fortunately, they had torches with them. They could see the sliding hatch pushed back 
and the washboards had been removed to the cabin. Going below, they faced chaos everywhere. Navigation equipment, VHF radio, binoculars and charts were stolen. Why? Who? Would they ever find out? Some rotten so-and-so emptied my whiskey bottle and nicked all my fags. What am I going to do now? complained Bob. Lee immediately informed the police, who half-heartedly agreed to be there first thing in the morning, as it was only a robbery, not a violent attack or murder. They didn't seem to be bothered. They cleared the chaos and made their way to bed, only to hear a yell from Pete. He shook his pillow, there was a clunk, and a handgun fell to the floor. He calmly wrapped it in a piece of old rag and dropped it over the side, and said, well, that'll get over any awkward questions when the police come in the morning. The others looked on in disbelief at cool, calm Pete. Finally, they settled, only to be woken a few hours later by screeching tyres, police sirens and raised voices. The crew discreetly watched the drama of their neighbours being led away to waiting police vans that roared away into the night. What a night! What an end to a perfect holiday! Within a short time, it would be daylight. The next morning they sat drinking coffee, still bleary-eyed after the previous night's events. They discussed what had to be done before returning the yacht to the charter company. A police car arrived at the last minute. The police asked questions, filled in paperwork and said, that they would contact them as soon as they had more information. The crew thanked them and bade them goodbye. They cast off for the short sail back to the charter company, hoping they had good insurance cover for the damage of the previous night. George said, well, let's be off then. But the yacht refused to budge. What on earth is going wrong now, groaned Lee. Right. I'll go and check underneath in case something's stopping us moving, exclaimed an exasperated George. He quickly changed into some old shorts and went over the side to investigate. A few minutes later, he appeared grim face and explained whoever wrecked the boat last night nicked the propeller. We'll have to arrange for a tow back to the boatyard. Phone call was made and they were eventually towed the short distance back to the charter yard where they had a lot of explaining to do. Fortunately, the owners were very understanding and assured them they wouldn't be blamed. It seems other boat owners had had their boats broken into the previous night as well. The police had had a busy night, with a body being washed ashore riddled with bullets. The crew glanced at each other and nodded, remembering the events of the previous evening. They were all very quiet on the way to the airport, still not believing what had happened in the last few hours, but it didn't deter them. They were soon planning their next trip. King's Tale is called Belle's Birthday, was written by Alice Goulding and is narrated by Kevin Daly. Isabel had persuaded her mother that she needed a society birthday bash for her 21st birthday. She wanted caviar, champagne and celebrities. She invited the more outrageous ones because the more notorious they were, the better the publicity. And Izzy wanted the publicity.
She was beautiful and glamorous, and she had money. What more could a girl possibly want except to be the subject of gossip and her photos splashed across the pages of magazines? She craved the attention, the worship, and the psychophancy. She lived for it. Her mother indulged her, her father paid her bills, and Izzy was spoilt beyond measure. She had no moral judgment whatsoever. Her conscience had no values of decency or honour. She behaved in a manner that gave her pleasure, with no thought to the consequences or the effect it had on the people around her. The most appalling thing of all was that Izzy had no real friends. Not one. She was completely oblivious of this fact, as she had no idea how a real friend should behave. She had hundreds of acquaintances, and they were happy to party with her. But if she were to have any real need of their help, then the odds of them standing by her were not so favourable. Again, Izzy had not considered this when she invited them all to her birthday bash. The party planner had surpassed herself, but Izzy... Did Izzy acknowledge the effort or the success of the evening? The short answer was no. The ice sculptures and appetizers went unappreciated, the decorations unnoticed, and the triumph of the night, an eight-tiered birthday cake, was left uncut. Izzy was nowhere to be found when it was time to sing and blow out the candles. She had drunk too much champagne and taken something that had not agreed with her. She needed air to blow the cobwebs away, and her convertible with the top down was definitely the way to go. So she did. She dropped the key in the cup holder and pressed the button to start the car. Putting her foot on the brake, she pushed the gear lever into drive and headed away from the hotel and out into the open road. The consequence of drinking too much champagne, together with taking suspect substances, granted Izzy the idea that she was invincible. Unfortunately for her, the outcome proved it was not so, as she took too sharp a bend at too high a speed and spun round and round, eventually overturning with dramatic effect. Izzy's birthday bash certainly made headlines, and for once it was not due to the outrageous behaviour of one of the celebrities. The wreckage of Izzy's car was photographed, and the information circulated that she had been pulled out alive was simply staggering once the pictures had been scrutinised in graphic detail. Izzy was put back together by a talented surgeon. That she had survived at all was frankly a miracle. She had received a birthday gift she hadn't asked for, someone who could save her life. But she was unable to appreciate its worth due to her drug-induced coma. Her road to recovery was long and solitary. Izzy gradually became aware that no friends came to visit. Her mother could barely look at her when they undid the bandages and had long since made her excuses, indulging her with pretty scarves to hide her scars instead of her company. Her father continued to pay her bills. Izzy at last began to see that being beautiful and glamorous was brilliant fun until you were no longer. 
what was left underneath. Izzy discovered that she was nothing underneath. Fortunately, help was at hand in the wise words of the talented surgeon, Dr. Fraser MacDonald, who had saved her. You, Izzy, are a blank canvas. Redesign yourself and be who you would aspire to be. Belle, not Izzy. No one will want to photograph Belle. Her scars are too hideous. No one will want to party with Belle. She no longer knows how to have fun. Belle cannot return to her old life. There is nothing left of it. I think Belle needs to stop the self-pity and help someone other than herself. There are many people who are worse off than Belle, and I will show you what you can do to help them, if you are willing. You can start a new life, a different life, and maybe in helping others you will help yourself. Belle looked up at his words through cutting her selfishness. Well, 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 well. Stop, 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 stop. That was a bit fumbly. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Okay, we'll start again. So just go, Belle looked up. Okay. Now? Yep. Belle looked up, his words cutting through her selfishness. Doctor's orders? Doctor's orders. Belle started slowly volunteering at the hospital. She played and entertained the sick children. And through their eyes, she learned that it was simple things that made you happiest. A hug, a smile, and spending time together. She turned her back on her old life and dedicated it to helping others. She became indispensable and loved by all who knew her. Dr. Fraser, who had told her those home truths, watched as she became more beautiful underneath her scars. And as they faded, he hardly noticed her looks at all. He would bump into her in the canteen and have his coffee with her, pop into the wards she was visiting to give his support, and finally he asked her out. Izzy would never have gone out with Dr. Fraser, but Belle was glad to, and day by day their love grew. Her mother still could not look at her daughter without seeing her scars and never thought she would marry, especially as she had always been so selfish and disagreeable. Her father was no more interested in her than he had been before, although he continued paying her bills. Mother, father, I would like you to come out for dinner. There is someone I would like you to meet. Oh, dearest, do you think that's wise? You don't want to put the other diners off their food. Perhaps we could join you at the Starlight Bar. The lighting is subdued, so no one will see you there. Belle was upset at her mother's shallowness and realised that was how she used to be. She had learned so much from the people she'd once ignored, and she had changed. She was even able to forgive her mother. That night she explained all this to Dr Fraser. He kissed her hand and went down on bended knee before her, taking out a small velvet box. Belle gasped. Belle, you are more beautiful today than you have ever been. You care about others and you are kind and encouraging. Your heart is pure and I've fallen in love with you. Marry me, Belle. She opened the small velvet box to reveal a perfect heart-shaped diamond ring. 
A single tear dribbled down Belle's cheek. How could she have been so lucky? You saved my life, and you saved my soul. I love you, Dr. Fraser MacDonald. Yes, I will marry you. Her mother was over the moon, but found herself torn. Should Belle have a big society wedding, with all their acquaintances seeing her scars, or a small intimate setting with only a few guests? Belle and Fraser gave her no chance to decide, and eloped to Gretna Green. And they both lived happily ever after. The Squall was written and is narrated by Isabel Cook. Suspended blue on endless sky, like snow-white clouds that float effortlessly by, with outstretched arms you feel you can reach, lying motionless on an endless flat beach. Storms brewing feel the world turn grey, dramatic darkness at the dawn of the day. It closes in and compresses the air. A dark silent reflects moods as the wind begins to stir. Wind stirs the waves in a cauldron of spray. The sun sinks behind a cloud but wish it could stay. From a concrete sky rain lashes the harbour wall where waves rise, crash, swell and fall. A deep-throated thunder that echoes across the abyss. A breathtaking theatrical display, the beachcombers at risk. The small boats toss, they rise and fall, when suddenly a lonely haunting seagull call. Flash of light as lightning streaks the sky. Electrically charged, you feel the power pass you by. Chinks of light break through the dark and steely grey, sending eerie light across the once-sheltered bay. A hint of painted blue gradually spills into brightening day, pushing the heavy, oppressive dark clouds away. The watered blue washes the panoramic view, a calm's returned, the storm's abated and has passed through. The proposal was written and is narrated by Jean Fairbairn. The proposal from the General Military Hospital, Salonica, Greece, 8th of December, 1918 and Arthur is waiting to leave the hospital ship where he's been stuck after the armistice and he actually doesn't get away until April 1919 here we are the proposal dear Annie my love for you is all I have to offer devotion deep within my heart yours too when I received my demob release papers I'll write to church and arrange to marry you. We'll have no funds for fancy frocks or fanfares, but violets and wild primrose picked with care, and pale pink roses perfuming the night air. We'll gather and make garlands for your hair. But now I must spend time in convalescing, from wounds received at Ypres in 915, a shell exploding knocked out all the buildings, and bricks and rubble rained down over me. Since that day, my life's been spent appealing against doctors trying to stop me leaving. But now malaria has me shaking in its clutches, caught from mosquitoes swarming in sea rushes. I promise I'll be fit by April springtide, set sail on Magdalen to claim my bride. So hang a lamp that's bright in your topmost window at night, like the pole star I'll follow its light. 
keeping it always in sight to show that my devotion can cross the deepest ocean and bring me safely home to marry you. Fondest love, Arthur, 122nd Heavy Artillery Unit, Cheshire safe landing and was written by Felicity Radcliffe. It is narrated by Felicity and Kevin Daly and myself Sue Rodwell-Smith. So do enjoy and sleep well. Safe landing. The morning sun found a gap in the heavy velvet curtains and instantly she was wide awake. On this momentous summer day her first thought upon waking was the same as on every other morning. She simply had to move out by the end of the year at the very latest. Annabel Darcy, you cannot begin the 1970s still living in your childhood bedroom, she muttered to herself, padding across the thickly carpeted floor towards her ensuite bathroom. As she filled the marble basin, she reflected that she would miss the luxury of her parents' Holland Park mansion. Far better, though, to slum it with a flatmate in Notting Hill or Bayswater and escape her mother's relentless crusade to marry her off. Carefully, Annabel backcombed her blonde hair, glued her false eyelashes in place and applied pink frosted lipstick. As she wiggled into her Mary Quant shift dress, she concluded that a trouser suit would be much more practical and comfortable for work. Alan, her immediate boss, would not object, but their fearsome editor Andrew Tilson, Acker, the gaffer, would not approve. He liked the woman in his newsroom to show a bit of leg. As she walked into the kitchen, her mother Ward wafted a languid hand towards the kitchen counter. Coffee is in the pot, she trilled, and I have asked Betty to make you some food to take with you, as I know you're going to be late tonight. Ah, here she is. Thank you, Betty dear, she said graciously as Betty handed Annabel her lunchbox. Annabel peered inside the box, then looked wearily at her mother. Rivita's mummy, again? Yes, with cottage cheese, Maud said firmly. A woman's waistline thickens as she gets older. You need to have discipline to keep your figure. I know it's all beer and bacon sandwiches at that newspaper of yours, but you have got to say no, otherwise you will become stout and no man will look at you. Thanks for the lecture, Mummy, but I have more important things on my mind today. Annabel sighed. It may have escaped your notice, but tonight a man is going to land on the moon for the very first time. As personal assistant to the picture editor of a major Fleet Street newspaper, I am going to help put the images of this historic occasion on the front page, where millions of people will see them. I haven't got time to worry about waistlines. Darling, you are a secretary who is staring 30 in the face, with no sign of a decent husband. Moon or no moon, the clock is ticking, and if you're not careful, you will be left on the shelf. Mummy, I'm only 26, and the world is changing. I want more from life than walking up the aisle in a white dress and pushing a pram a year later. Her mother smiled knowingly. Pick the right husband, Annabel, and he'll hire someone to push the pram for you. You won't have to lift a finger. To Annabel's relief, their conversation was interrupted by her father, Aubrey, who rushed in, red-faced and flustered. Maud, I need you to help me find my new blue tie. Betty must have rearranged my wardrobe. I can't see it anywhere, and I'm due at Westminster in an hour. The car's already on its way to pick me up. Morning, darling. Uh, 
who finished distractedly noticing his daughter and giving her a peck on the cheek. Morning, Daddy. I've got to go. Mind you don't lift a finger now, Mummy, called Annabelle cheerfully, shoving her lunchbox into her bag as she left the kitchen. On the central line heading east, Animal reflected on her mother's words. Maud's comments about her waistline were a water off a duck's back, but four of her words had struck home. You are a secretary. Annabelle had hoped that her shorthand and typing skills plus her excellent contacts would help her break into news reporting, but all her efforts to land a job as a junior reporter had so far been in vain. She knew that she was valued by her boss, but to his colleagues in the newsroom, she was just one of the invariably attractive women who brighten the place up and perform the tasks that the journalists, most of whom were male, considered to be beneath them. As far as the hacks were concerned, she was fine, just where she was. Annabelle's spirits lifted once she got off the tube at St Paul's and took her favourite route to the office. As she turned into Fleet Street, she experienced a familiar sensation of being right at the centre of things, in the place where the news were gathered, embellished and packaged up for consumption by the eager masses. To be part of the daily adrenaline fueled frenzy of publishing a national newspaper was the biggest rush she had ever known, particularly on a day like today. Briskly she walked across the crowded newsroom, which was full of men yelling into their phones and marching around imperiously on supposedly vital missions. At the picture desk in the far corner, her boss, the notoriously blunt Yorkshireman Alan Postlethwaite, sat in his habitual fog of cigarette smoke, poring over a transparency on a light box. Post has just arrived, Alan muttered gruffly by way of a greeting, indicating a teetering pile of letters, newspapers and magazines on Annabelle's desk. Sort it out while I'm in the editorial conference, then I'll brief you on today. With that, he wandered off to the conference room, notepad in one hand and fag in the other. Annabelle watched him go, reflecting that despite his brusque manner, which some people wrongly interpreted as rude, she would much rather have him as her boss than the gaffer. So in conclusion, Andrew Tilson barked at his editorial team, there's only one story that matters today. I don't care if the bloody Cray twins escape from prison, the moon landing goes on the front page. I want our coverage to blow every other peeper away. Alan, I don't need to tell you that your pictures are key to making this happen. Do not, I repeat, not balls this up. Right, that's it. Bugger off, all of you, and get to work. Yes, Janet? The gaffer folded his arms and glared at his fashion editor, who had raised her hand. We haven't talked about the angle I'm taking, Janet began. I've put together a piece on futuristic space-age outfits. I don't give a rat's crap about your space-age outfits, yelled Tilson. Just write whatever shit you women like to read about and leave me alone. If you don't care about my work, shouted feisty Janet, why do you invite me to the editorial conference? I don't know why I employ you, let alone allow you in this room, roared the gaffer. Now get out of here before I fire your bony arse. Knowing when to cut and run, Janet hastily left the room. Alan finished briefing Annabelle, then reached for his phone. Right, I need 
to call the agency and find out when they're wiring the pictures through. Pop out and get me 40 number 6 and the bacon sandwich, would you? Get one for yourself too. It's going to be a long day. Thank you, Alan. I'm ravenous. Annabelle grabbed her purse and headed off to the cafe and the corner shop. When she returned, Alan was sitting at his desk looking terrified, his face deathly pale. Pushing his bacon sandwich to one side, he lit up and exhaled a despairing plume of smoke in Annabelle's direction. Whatever is the matter, Alan? inquired Annabelle. She had never seen her boss look scared before. Afraid of nought, me, he had boasted on numerous occasions, particularly after several pints of beer. This time was clearly different. I just got off the phone to the agency, he began. The cameras are down. A major technical malfunction, what the heavens the sodding hell that's supposed to mean. The upshot is that they will unfortunately be unable to wire us the close-ups of the moon's surface that we need to put on the front pages of our fine newspaper this evening, on pain of death. So you and I, my dear, need to hit the phones right now and hire another agency, otherwise we're finished. Alan handed Annabelle a crumpled piece of paper covered in hastily scribbled names and phone numbers. I suggest you get dialing and use all that posh charm of yours to work as a miracle. An hour later, it was clear that the miracle was not going to happen. All the other agencies had signed exclusivity agreements with the paper's Fleet Street competitors, so there was no way to obtain the close-up photos of the moon that the gaffer was expecting. So what do we do now, Alan? asked Annabelle. What I do right now, Alan sighed, is to go and see Andrew Tilson and explain what has happened and fall on my sword. Now after they've fired both of us, we go to Elvino's for lunch, get roaring drunk and afterwards leave Fleet Street forever. You go off and marry some chinless wonder and I spend the rest of my days taking pictures of fates at the Battley Chronicle. Annabelle thought about lunch at Elvino's and suddenly had an idea. Alan, wait a moment. Don't do anything hasty. Grabbing her lunchbox from her bag, she opened it and pointed to the contents. See these rivetas? Never eaten the buggers. But yeah, Alan growled. What's your point? If you look closely, you will see that they have these little sort of craters on the surface. Annabelle explained. I thought that if we could get our own cameras on them, blow them up a lot, and perhaps get the art department to do some work on the result, then with a bit of luck... They'd look like the craters of the sodding moon. Alan stared at her, his face a picture of incredulity. (laughs) Then he laughed. Annabelle, you're a bloody genius. I think you might just have saved both our jobs. Let's give it a try, but not a word to anyone, mind. Later that night, the first edition of the next day's paper went to press and Andrew Tilson, in a rare display of geniality, walked around the newsroom to congratulate his editorial team. Great job, Alan, he beamed. Your pictures are outstanding. The quality was much better than I expected. Thanks, Andrew. I couldn't have done it without Annabelle, though. With a smile, Alan pointed towards his secretary, who was just picking up her bag ready to leave. Oh, you mean your posh dolly bird, laughed Tilson. 
Best you take her to the Cheshire Cheese for a few drinks, if she's done a hard day's work. Actually, I think she deserves more than that by way of a reward, ventured Alan. To be frank, she's wasted as my secretary. In my opinion, she's worthy of a promotion. Fair enough. It's good timing, actually. One of the girls in the fashion desk has gone and got herself pregnant. So there's an opening there, working for Janet. She's a good-looking girl, your secretary. She'll fit right in. We can easily find you a new secretary to replace her. Can't say fairer than that, can I? You crafty old sod, Postlethwaite, catching me while I'm in a good mood. With that, the two men smiled at each other, shook hands firmly, then headed off to the pub. The fashion desk? That sounds rather nice, darling. Maud smiled at her daughter, sitting opposite her at the kitchen table. Will the designers give me any free samples? Let me know if they have anything in my size, but none of those dreadful hippie caftans, please. They won't do at all. I don't care about fashion or free samples. I want to be a news reporter, Annabelle retorted through gritted teeth. Her mother, though, was oblivious, immersed once again in her copy of Harper's Bazaar. Sighing deeply, her daughter opened the evening paper and turned straight to the letting section. Author's note. The bit about the Rivitas is actually true. A newspaper really did put a picture of a Rivita on its front page and passed it off as the moon. Back in 1969, technology was rather limited, so they had to improvise. The rest of the story is a product of my imagination, although a fictional version of a certain household name does make a cameo appearance. As some of you know, my late father was a Fleet Street journalist for more than 20 years. He also used to deliver lectures to police forces and schools on journalism and press relations. At every lecture, he would place a packet of Rivitas on the desk in front of him to remind the audience not to believe everything they read in the newspapers. That's why, when the judges of the writing competition presented me with a parcel of Rivitas to show how much they had enjoyed the story, it was quite an emotional moment for me. The judges said they found the story truly amusing, which was great, but I was also trying to say something more serious about what a sexist world it was back then, and how young women were held back not only by men, but by other women, in this case, Annabelle's mother. We're not there yet, of course, but progress has definitely been made. I hope you enjoyed the story. Let me know if you have any comments. Felicity Ratcliffe